Well, brothers and sisters, Exodus 17 tonight. Exodus chapter 17. I so enjoyed Pastor Ted this morning giving us a glimpse of Jesus from the life of Samson. And I think the Lord's been teaching me a lot lately about seeing Christ in the Old Testament. And I read a book several months ago that was a book written uh, in honor of Ed Clowney, who taught for years at Westminster Seminary. The book was called Heralds of the King. And the book was basically a series of messages in tribute to Ed that were all centered around Christ-centered preaching. And one of those sermons so struck me and impressed me that I want to preach it for you tonight. I took a lot of inspiration from Julius Kim, who's a, a pastor, and his message on Exodus 17. So I want to give him full credit lest I plagiarize tonight. Um, not everything I'm going to say came from him, but the burden of the message did. And so I want to uh, share that with you tonight. Let's read the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on. Before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you tonight before your word one more time. And just like we just sang, helpless, we look to you for grace. We fly to you and ask you to give us the grace we stand in need of tonight. To listen well, to feel well, to live well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to think about for a moment with me what would happen If God got taken to court, has God ever gotten taken to court? Well, he did here. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, is God getting taken to court. The Israelites take God to court in the desert courtroom of Massa and Meribah, as it says There in verse 7. 
He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word Massa means trial, a legal trial. And the word Meribah means strife or quarrel. In this story, we are going to see tonight three major legal events unfold in this courtroom drama between Israel and the Lord. A charge is going to be presented, a verdict is going to be given, and a sentence is going to be executed. First, I want you to notice the charge. We see that in verses 1 through 4. Israel's in the desert. They have been delivered out of Egypt, Egyptian bondage, and they are now in the wilderness. And they bring a case, a legal case, before Moses. In verse 2, we read, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Now that word quarrel has legal connotations. The word quarrel in the ESV, it doesn't quite pick up the legal connotations, but used elsewhere in the Bible, it is used in legal context translated to bring suit. You know, we sing a hymn around here from time to time, come my soul, thy suit prepare. And I think other pastors have mentioned that's not talking about what you're wearing. It's not talking about get your clothes ready. It's talking about bring your case, bring your argument. It has legal connotations. And that's what the Israelites are doing with the Lord here. They are bringing a legal issue to to Moses. They're the plaintiffs. Moses is the defendant. So what's the charge? Breach of contract. Breach of contract. Now, those of you who are familiar with law know that when a contract is signed, if either one of those parties violate the contract, they are in breach of contract and their substance are subject then to penalties, either fines or uh, some sort of possible legal prosecution, maybe even jail, depending on the, the severity of the charge. But it's clear here that Israel is charging Moses and ultimately God himself because Moses is the mediator. They are charging God via Moses with abandoning Israel to die in the wilderness. See, God had made a promise to Israel, actually made a promise to Abraham. Remember back in Genesis 12 where he promised that God would make Abraham a great nation and he would bless them. And then we see that come to fulfillment in the, in, in the growth of the people in Egypt as they turn into a great nation. And then they are rescued out of Egyptian bondage and brought in, or on, they're on their way now to Canaan, to the promised land. But they're here in the wilderness, and they're without water. And they are freaking out. And they bring to Moses a charge. God is in breach of contract. God is breaking covenant with us. He is not holding up his end of the deal. In legal language, they are accusing God of treason. Of treason. They are saying that God has failed to keep his promises and uphold his end of the contract. The promise that he would be their God. 
We see that in verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why would you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? That's an accusation to Moses against God. See, the only reason that God saved us was to bring us out here and die. That was not what he said he would do. And so they present the charge. Second point, a verdict is given in verse 5. Look with me there. Moses is obviously pretty stressed about the situation since he says in verse 4 they're getting ready to stone him, which is uh, not a good thing. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 5, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Now, with what does Moses go ahead of the people? What is he to take with him? Notice, God says for Moses to take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, God gives very, now that's a very interesting detail. Why does the Lord tell him to take, make sure, Moses, you take that staff with, with you? Not just any staff, the staff that you used to strike the Nile back in Egypt. Now, what staff is he referring to? He's referring to the staff that Moses used during the plagues when he struck the Nile and the Nile turned to blood. That staff in that moment was an instrument of God's judgment. He's saying, take that staff, the staff that you used to judge the Egyptians with death, or with, at least with blood in their, in their river. Take that staff and pass before the people. Okay, imagine the situation. People of Israel are out there. Moses stands up. He starts to walk, and he goes over, and he grabs the staff. He's already talked to the Lord. The people are waiting to hear the verdict. Is God in breach of contract or not? Has he violated his, his end of the covenant or not? Moses goes over, grabs the stick. Could you just imagine, oh, no. What have we done now? You, hey, hey, come here, Samuel, come here. You see what Moses has got there? Yeah. That's the stick, man. Do you remember the stick? No, man, tell me about the stick. That stick was the stick that he used on the river, turned it to blood. Uh-oh. They would have gotten that. They would have said, uh-oh, judgment is coming. We're guilty. We're guilty, and it's coming. But that's not the only thing that God tells Moses to take, right? We see also in verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Now, why does he say that? Why is that necessary? Because of the legal context, keep in mind, they are the jury who is going to deliberate over this case. I mean, you can feel the tension. It's palpable. Imagine you're sitting there. You have just uttered a not just a complaint, not just a grumble. You have brought a legal charge against God for breaking covenant. That's serious. You take God to court, that's serious. 
God gets taken to court. Moses grabs a staff and says, elders, come with me. And as they walk off the scene, there's a hush over Israel. What is going to be the sentence? What is going to happen to us? It's clear who the guilty party is here, isn't it? Is it God? Is it Moses? Or is it Israel? Remember the context. God has delivered his people according to his promise, Exodus 14, by parting the Red Sea for them. They got to witness God part not just a little creek, but a sea. And they got to walk through on dry land and turn back and watch as Pharaoh's army drowned. And they saw the bodies wash up on the, on the scene. They look out on the shore and say, they see dead Egyptians all over the place. They've seen that. And then in Exodus 15, they complain about water again. And God makes the bitter water sweet for them. And then in Exodus 16... They're hungry. God gives them manna and quail. And then in Exodus 17, we see same situation again. They've already not only seen a massive deliverance by God in the Exodus, but they have also seen God's daily attentive care over and over and over again. And yet they still want to charge God with wrongdoing. They still want to charge God with breach of contract. They are, they are the guilty party. Not God and not Moses. It is they who have betrayed God, not God, them. It is they who are in breach of contract, not God. It is they who have broken the terms of the covenant with their unbelief, not God. So just to summarize, the charge, treason. The verdict, guilty of wrongful prosecution. Israel's guilty. They have wrongfully prosecuted God. So what's next? The sentence awaits. Justice will be served, and the charge for treason is death. So execution is coming. And the sentence is executed, point number three, in verses six and seven. Let's read them again. Behold, I will stand before you. This is what God says to Moses. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Mesa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So Moses is commanded to raise the rod of judgment, right? He's, he is to take the staff, which he used to strike the Nile and go, and he is to stand before, God will stand before him there on the rock at Horeb, and God commands Moses right in the middle of verse 6, you shall strike the rock. Now it's clear, the rock, the rod of judgment deserves to fall on Israel, not on the rock. 
But nevertheless, God commands Moses to strike the rock. Now, two important details I want to pull out from verse 6. The first one is that God declares that he will stand before Moses. Doesn't he? You notice that at the beginning of verse 6? Behold, I will stand before you. I, God, Yahweh, the Lord, will stand before you, Moses, there on the rock at Horeb. Now, what is the significance of that word before? I will stand before you. Well, throughout Scripture, in legal context, it is a man as the guilty criminal who must stand before God to receive the judgment of God. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read you one verse in Deuteronomy chapter 19 so you can see this whole idea of standing before. And this is, this is in a legal context. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 17 says the following. Then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in office those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So this is a legal context, and he says, bring him before me. Bring him before, what's the before? Bring him before me to be judged. Now what's going on here? When Moses and the elders of Israel, and they take the staff, and they go, what God says to them is don't place Israel on the rock. Place me on the rock. Don't punish Israel. Punish me. I will stand before you and receive the verdict of guilty, even though I am innocent. I will stand before you, taking the place of the accused. But there's a second interesting detail here, and that is that God places himself not only before Moses, but on the rock, doesn't he? Did you notice that in verse 6 at the beginning? Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Now, we've just been through a great series on the Psalms. I hope you've enjoyed it. And over and over again, you have seen God described as a rock. He is the rock of our salvation. Over and over again in the Psalms, Psalm 78, 35, Psalm 95, 1, and also in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, you see God described as a rock in a salvation context. What God is declaring here is that he himself will be the rock of salvation for his people. He is the one who will receive the pronouncement of guilty. He is the one who will take the judgment for his people. Moses will raise the rock, the rod, the rod, the staff that he used to strike the Nile in judgment, and he will strike God in judgment. God is declaring that through though Israel deserves judgment, he will stand before Moses and on the rock to take the judgment for them. Though innocent, he will substitute himself for the guilty. So what happens? The end of verse 6. 
You shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So Moses lifts up the rod of judgment, and he strikes the rock on which God stands, and with which he is symbolically identified. And as a result of the striking of the rock, water flows out to quench the thirst of a very, very guilty, sinful people. Now, we aren't left to wonder in the Bible, is this really a picture of Christ? We have apostolic warrant to say, absolutely, it's a picture of Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In the first five verses, 1 Corinthians 10, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That's a reference to the Exodus. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food manna and quail, and all drank the same spiritual drink, the water from the rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed, that followed them. And the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. You get it. No question. No spiritual symbolizing going on up here tonight. God's intention in Exodus 17 is for us to see Jesus Christ. That's the point. He wants us to see the Old Testament gospel is the same as the New Testament gospel. God substituting himself for sinners, taking the judgment they deserve, receiving in himself the penalty that they deserve. That's exactly what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is struck with a rod of judgment for a guilty people. And because of that, living water flows to us. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus died and the sword was thrust into his side, what poured out, according to John 19? Blood and water. Water flowed from the side of Christ. And when Jesus comes again in Revelation 22 and all is made new, we will drink from the great river of life that flows from the throne. So, in fact, we are meant to see, gloriously see, a vision of our Savior from Exodus 17. We see the rock as Christ and the spiritual rock from which they drank was Christ. Now, let me make a few closing applications before we wrap up here tonight. I want to say several things. First of all, what does this do, Christian, tonight? 
What does this do to your grumbling heart? What does this do to your I want it my way mentality? What does this do to they never listen to me? They don't do what I say. What does this do with all of your fickle faithlessness? Doesn't it make you want to treasure and love God? Doesn't it melt your heart with gratitude for what God would do for you in your worst situation? This is the cure for your grumbling and complaining. Not stop it. It's to watch God get on the rock in the face of it. It's to watch God say, strike me and give them water. That, if you will focus there, if you will fix your eyes there, then all this stuff about what other people aren't doing for you goes away. All of this grumbling that creeps up into our lives day by day by day goes away. Or at least it's put in its proper perspective. So let the kindness of God, brothers and sisters, lead you to repentance. Let it lead you to repentance. It's only the kindness of, kindness of God and witnessing the kindness of God display here that's going to cure you ultimately of a grumbling spirit. Everything else is behavior modification. Everything else is temporary sedative to a grumbling heart. If you're dominated by a grumbling and complaining spirit, you need God to get on the rock. And he has gotten on the rock. And you need to look at that. You need to look at that. Him taking the judgment that you deserve. Willingly, joyfully. And as a result, your grumbling can be really healed at a deep level because then it'll be replaced by gratitude. It'll be replaced by thanksgiving. It'll be replaced by joy. It'll be, it'll be replaced by humility. And not all the things that feed our grumbling and our unbelief. Here's another application. Number two, when God tests you, Don't take him to court. When God tests you, that's what he's doing here. He's testing his people. He's not breaking contract. He's seeing if they'll trust him. He's not letting down his word. He's seeing if they're going to bank on his promises. And when God leads you into the wilderness and he deprives you of some water... Don't take him to court over it and sue him for breach of contract. God, you haven't held up your end of the deal. I'm done with this Christianity. Don't be that way. Don't sue him. Don't take him to court. Look to the rock. Look at the rock where the rock was struck when you deserve to be on the rock. Look there. But don't take God to court. When God tests you, also think about his track record with you. Has he not proven faithful to you? My wife and I were talking this afternoon at the, I guess you'd call it lunch table. It was more catching a break between the kids, grabbing us. 
But we were talking about this a little bit. We were we were thinking about what what if we had had Piper before we adopted Judson? What if we didn't have to go through the two miscarriages? And we thought about what a bitter pill that was to swallow five, six years ago. Those several miscarriages, what a, what a bitter pill that was. And those of you who've been through that know, know that's a bitter pill to swallow. And you start all the things Katie told me this afternoon. She said that was the first time in my life where all the things that I knew about God were actually challenged. Is he good? Does he have my best interests at heart? Is he going to bless me? Even though he said he would. And I don't feel like this is much, this is very good or a blessing. And I reminded her, it's, it's okay to say that to the Lord, to tell him that, because that's what the Psalms are. The Psalms are a process, processing of taking our circumstances, bringing them to God, having God evaluate them, and then by faith receiving his vision for our circumstances. And as we were talking, I said, if God would have given us Piper, we never would have gotten Judson. I mean, the chances of us actually going to adopt at that time would have been very, very thin. Number one, financially it would have been difficult. But then two, the, the longing for children and, and the, the desire to adopt wouldn't, maybe wouldn't have been as strong. I'm not saying it wouldn't have been there, but it might not have been as strong. And lo and behold, five years go by, and Piper's born, and Judson's with us. And we are able to see the wisdom of God. I'm so thankful that by grace I didn't sue God back then. I'm so glad I didn't sue him and say, God, good things happen to God's people. The TV preachers tell me so. Just not true. Difficult situations. God sends difficult, difficult situations into his people's lives so that he might test them and so that he might see whether or not really am I your treasure or do you just love me for the things I give you? So when God tests you, don't take him to court. Trust his track record. And I know Pastor Ted appealed to those of you who are here tonight who may not be a Christian, but I just want to make one more loving appeal to you. You're grumbling against God, and you're questioning of God, and your unbelief in God, and your unwillingness to submit your life to God is a great sin against God. But do you not have confidence from this passage that if you go to God, he'll receive you? That if you were to go to God tonight and say, I deserve your judgment. But if you went to him tonight, he would receive you. You should have all the confidence in the world that he would. Because he's already put himself on the rock. He's already been put on the chopping block. He's already submitted in Christ his life to the cross. So there's every reason to receive fresh forgiveness of sin tonight. There's every reason to have your sins washed away, to be made new. There's every reason to do that. 
But know this, God will not be mocked, and God is not to be played with. There will come a day where Jesus will take up another rock, or not not another rock, but another staff. And this time it's not so much a staff, but a sword. And if you do not come to Christ and submit your life to him now, he will run you through because of the insult to his grace that you have been. Because of the fact that you looked at the rock and you said, no, I don't want your kindness. I don't want your love. I don't want your mercy. I don't want your forgiveness. I want it my way. And Jesus will say, you can have it. But there will be a judgment day, and there will be reckoning, and you will pay. But right now is the day where God has extended himself to you and said, come. Come to me. Receive me. I will give you living water, which will quench your thirsty soul. God's telling some of you, some of you are sitting here or maybe sitting here later on at some point. Later parts of high school, later parts of adulthood, and look back and say, man, all the water I was trying to drink just left me more and more thirsty. I just wasted it. I wasted time. I wasted energy. And God says, as Jesus says, if you drink of this water, you'll never be thirsty again. You'll never be thirsty. I will quench your thirst, and you won't have to look for anywhere else. So I invite you to come to the water that really satisfies. Come to the water that really quenches thirst. And Christians, this applies to us too. This applies to us too. Let's never forget the vision of God we've seen. And let's continue to revel in the gospel that we not only find in the New Testament, but also in the Old And when God gets taken to court, he gets judged. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for this this great vision of you, this wonderful vision of your character and what you're like and your love for your people. You are so wonderful to us. You are more kind to us than we possibly deserve. You are more gracious than we ever dared hope. You are more beautiful than we thought imaginable. And every time we get a fresh glimpse of you, we fall in love with you more. It's like we come to Christ all over again. And so thank you for this vision tonight. Thank you for this beautiful portrait of you substituting yourself for sinners. And we thank you that we know that not only is that just prefigured, and not only is it a type or a shadow, but it has actually happened. It's happened. It's finished. You have, you have already given the final act The real person, the Lord Jesus Christ, has walked and lived and died and been judged and rose again for us. So thank you for your faithful track record. Thank you for keeping your word. Thank you for never letting a promise fall to the ground. Thank you that even when you test us, you can be trusted because we know your heart. We know your heart. Even when you test us, you already put yourself on the rock for us. So you will work good for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.